You're listening to Heart Food Podcast, episode 25 with Sal Stefano. Welcome to Heart Food Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Pardo, nutritional therapy practitioner and private chef. This is a show that tells you the truth about food, nutrition, movement, mental health, mindfulness, and body image, all with a hefty dose of real talk. This show will inspire you, change your mindset, and help you feel more confident and comfortable in your own skin inside and out. To find the show notes for each episode and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, visit ashleypardo.com. Find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ashley K. Pardo. Find me on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel at Ashley Pardo. If you have a question to be answered on this podcast, please email it to heartfoodpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Hey guys, welcome back to Heart Food Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Let's just get right into it. I have a great episode for you today with Sal Stefano, who is a certified personal trainer and one of the hosts of Mind Pump. If you guys haven't heard of Mind Pump, which is a health and fitness podcast, I totally recommend that you check it out. Not only do they have such amazing, you know, practical information about health and fitness, but it's hilarious, super entertaining. It's just three growth-minded guys who are really into like business and bettering themselves, just getting really vulnerable and talking about things that nobody talks about, like the fact that the fitness industry and the diet industry don't always steer us in the right direction, the fact that we could have like eating disorders and might not even know it, the fact that like our traumas might affect us, uh, just really vulnerable things. And you guys know that I love all of that, which is why I was so happy that Sal agreed to come on the show. And I was so happy with our conversation as well, because we really focused on the mindset stuff, which you all know I talk about probably more than anything. And we really delve into how food and exercise can really be tools that can totally change your life for the better if you approach it in an open way, in a way that you allow yourself to be transformed by this and to be potentially a different person. So, you know, exercising and eating healthy food does not have to be a burden. It can actually be a pathway to being like the person that you know that you can be on the inside. And I talk about this too, because you all know that I had my own internal transformation and external transformation. And what's crazy is that the inside changed more so than the outside, which is why I talk about this stuff so much and why I'm so passionate about it. But we also talk about intuitive eating and I know that many of you out there might feel like shit if you're intuitively eating and like you're eating ice cream all day because that's supposedly what your body wants and you're feeling like crap. So we kind of provide a a framework that you can use to begin your intuitive eating journey. Sal does a great job at providing that. I just said we, but it was him. And we also talk about how to approach situations with 
your kids and eating. And he gives a really interesting answer. And we talk about a bunch more stuff in there. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation and I hope you check out Mind Pump. I will put a link to their show in the show notes along with Sal's Instagram. So you can go ahead and check him out. Enjoy the show, guys. So I found out about you guys through the Girls Gone Wad. And love I, those girls. I love them. I've been a fan of them for years. And I was so relieved when I heard your conversation because I was like, oh my God, these guys are talking about like body image and trauma and eating oh, yeah. disorders and all this <laughs> stuff. And that's really where I focus. I'm um, a private chef and a nutritional therapy practitioner. I also have an online business, but I really help women specifically like sensitive introverted women quit dieting and as we know there's a lot involved with that so i really loved hearing all of you talk about those things because as we know it's really just not about just eating and moving right so for people who maybe don't know about mind pump and don't know maybe who you are i'm wondering if you can tell us your story and how you got you know to where you are today and why you do what you do yes excellent thanks for having me on by the way oh my pleasure so, um, I mean, my personal story, I, I've, I've been involved in fitness personally for a very, very long time. I started uh, working out in my, my backyard with my dad's weight set when I was about uh, 14 years old. And what motivated me initially to, to start lifting weights and exercising was, uh, you know, I, had, I was very insecure about my body. I had some body image issues. I was a very skinny uh, kid. I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't particularly athletic, um, and you know I had a very kind of strong athletic dad, and uh, I felt like I, you know I wasn't inadequate in that particular sense. So it motivated me to lift weights, and luckily I have that kind of can-do attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went out in the backyard and started training and reading as much information as I possibly could. At a very early age, I have a you know for for better or worse, I tend to have a, a bit of a hypomanic, obsessive personality, so... Same. Yeah, it's yeah. like either <laughs> off, right? Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, I, got, I, I really got into it. So I, I bought books, I bought magazines, I read everything I could about, you know, building muscle. And there was some information that I learned that, that was beneficial. A lot of it, I would say, though, uh, was kind of bad information. And we can get into that later, but the fitness industry is... Uh, driven by um, supplement companies and by marketers. And so most of the information, at least when I was a kid, most of the information that you could get on on building muscle was, you know, were the, the muscle building magazines, which were basically, you know, huge uh, pamphlets for uh, supplements and products. So everything in there, all the articles and everything was kind of geared towards that. So there was a, definitely a lot of mistakes I made uh, early on, but nonetheless, I was I, I fell in love with it. Um, you know, started training, started training my friends and giving people advice and stuff. And when I I knew right away, within a, probably a couple years, that I wanted to work with people and I wanted to use exercise uh, to help people. Um, and uh, I initially thought, you know, because I didn't really know what jobs there were, what careers there were doing that, and so I thought to myself. Uh, maybe physical therapist or or something like that. Um, At the age of 18, you know, at this point, I had been working out in the local uh, 24-hour fitness gym. And at the age of 18, which was the threshold age for employment uh, by the gym, I walked in. It was probably like a month after I turned 18 and 
Um, I applied to become a personal trainer and I thought this would be a great job to learn exercise and to learn how to work with people while I get an education and become a physical therapist. And so I, I became a trainer and within a very short period of time, I think it was about four months. I mean, it was like fish to water. I mean, I'd loved it so much. Mm -hmm. I love people so much. I come from a big family. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't uh, hard for me to even at, you know, even at the age of 18, it wasn't hard for me to walk up to people on the workout floor and talk to them. And I was very passionate. And again, like I'm, I have that hypomanic personality. So if I'm into something, everybody knows what I'm into. So mm -hmm. it wasn't difficult for me to talk to people about fitness and to convince them to hire me because I felt like I could help them. And within about four months, they, they made me the manager. And so I managed uh, the fitness department of a large health club at 18. And, um, you know, after doing that for a little while, you know, the school started again and I was time to go back to, I was supposed to take some courses to get my, you know, move towards getting my degree. And, um, I told my managers that I couldn't manage anymore because the time was just, it was, it wasn't working out very well. I would go to, I would go to work in the morning and then I'd, in the middle of the day, I'd take a break and go to class and then I'd work again. And I would usually stay to work, uh, stay at work until about 10 PM. Um, and it was school just kind of was, it was, it was impossible. So I remember talking to my managers and, uh, one of the managers ended up becoming my mentor, one of my mentors. And he, he asked me, he said, do you know how much you're making? And it was funny because at that age I was kind of, uh, it, it, I, I don't really have a good concept of what a good amount of money to make was or not. I didn't really spend it. I kind of, I live with my parents. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, yeah, I, you know, I'm making this much. And he goes, well, do you know how much you're going to make when you graduate college and be a physical therapist? And I said, well, I really don't. And so we talked about it and we looked it up and I was already making as much as uh, I would have as a physical therapist. And, but the, the thing that really, that I really thought about was how much I loved being in gyms. And at this time I had a, a, there was a client that I'd worked with who was also a physical therapist and I talked to them about physical therapy and they really talked to me about the, the, you know, what, what it was like to work in a clinical setting, work in a hospital, work with patients. And I thought to myself, like, gosh, you know, I really like working in the gym and kind of helping people before they injure themselves. Mm -hmm. At least I don't mind helping and rehabbing people, but you know, the way they explained it to me was how a, a lot of their patients were prescribed, you know, physical therapy. And sometimes they don't want to come in and show up and they were kind of limited in, as to what they could do because of, you know, in the medical field, it's, it, it tends, it's much more, far more regulated. So you're more restricted on what you can do. And I just love the gym. I love the atmosphere. I love the music. I love the energy. And, um, so I decided to stay, uh, in the gym industry and eventually became a general manager, um, continue to train trainers and work with clients and do all that. And eventually I, uh, you know, at the age of 22, I, I, I opened my own uh, wellness facility where I had trainers that worked under me and we had massage therapists and acupuncturists and I continued to train people. And I did that for another 12 years um, and, and until, you know, I started uh, Mind Pump or with my, my co-host and, and our producer, Doug. But, you know, you made some comments about how we talked about, you know, the what we like to call the the mental or the, the psychological aspect of fitness. Mm -hmm. and we talk about that a lot. And the reason why we talk about it so much 
on our show, even though, and I think the reason why it maybe it shocked you a little bit or why you were surprised by it is because we look like three, you know, we're, well, three bros, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Meatheads. That's what you guys look like, you know? Right. We lift weights. Uh-huh. And, you know, Adam, Adam was a professional physique competitor for yes. the IFBB and mm-hmm. just played college football. And yeah. Although I wasn't super athletic, I, you know, I like to lift weights. And so I look, you know, I look like I lift weights all the time. Right. So, mm-hmm. it, so you expect three dudes and three bros to not talk about that at all. Like you expect us to talk about like macros and, and, and bodybuilding or and like fat that. loss and fat loss, you know, but but here's the deal. All, all three of us, I mean, I, I was training trainers or training clients for, you know, 20 years, you yeah. know, Adam and Justin, uh, for I think like 14 and 15 years. Uh, so we have a lot of experience and when you train people, uh, when you have, when you train people that long and you have to also have a, a true passion for helping people and integrity, which you know, the thing that really bonded, because I, I didn't know Adam or Justin before we started Mind Pump. So people think that we've, we were longtime friends. We met, you know, months before we started the show. But we were immediately uh, connected and bonded because, for over a few different things. And one of those was our commitment to integrity. You know, it's just a part of our character. Uh, and, it, you know, it might maybe sometimes to a fault. Sometimes we're so honest that we rub people the wrong way. But, um, you know, we we all firmly believe that just that integrity will will drive you to making better decisions more often uh, than not. Sometimes you'll ruffle feathers, um, but usually it, you know, points you in the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that integrity combined with our passion for people and the amount of time that we train people, the length and experience, uh, experience that we have. You know, when you when you could do that for as long as we did, you, you go through a couple phases. And, and the first phase as a trainer really is learning about, you know, macronutrients. It's learning about calories, you know, how many calories foods have. And it, it's learning about how many calories you burn. And then it's learning about biomechanics and, uh, you know, uh, exercise technique and muscle recruitment patterns and exercise programming. And so you learn all that. I'd say probably the first five to seven years like that's your focus and you get really good at that but once you start to and you know it's one of those i don't remember what it's called there's a term for this but it's like the more you learn you reach a point when you start to realize you know way less than you thought you did because you start to become more aware yes what you don't know mm-hmm. and all of us did this and we've talked about this many times on the show you know as we were training people and training trainers and managing gyms and growing these businesses and learning about, again, macros, calories, exercise technique, and correctional exercise, all that stuff, you start to realize that you can apply that as much as you want. And although that has lots of value, and that's definitely a big part of the pie in terms of success when it comes to health and fitness, it's a piece. It's not the whole pie. And so we start to realize that we need to figure out, like, why? Like, why are people choosing to eat a particular way even though it's uh, obviously uh, detrimental to their health and their well-being? Like, you know, when somebody's 60 pounds overweight, for example, which, and I'm using weight because that's a very clear objective, like 60 pounds is very objective, right? Because I could talk about like how someone feels, their lack of sleep, all those other things, which tend to be a little more subjective. But when somebody's 60 pounds overweight, at some point they were 20 pounds overweight. 
but they continued down that path. So, mm. so why? Like, what is, what's the, what's going on there, or why is it that people will lose weight or people will improve their health tremendously, and then go back yes. to, you know, being unhealthy? Like, what's going on? Why are we unable to, with all this information? And we thought we were so smart and we know exactly what to do. Like, just do what I tell you. I remember telling clients that, right? You know, yeah. it's five years in. I remember telling my clients, like, listen, just do what I tell you, but it won't be a problem. Just exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, failed, right? It, mm-hmm. it, sometimes it worked in the short term, but it definitely failed in the long term. And so then you start to get to the second part of your career where you really start to dive down deep and figure out how to really create lasting, long-lasting, impactful change with people. And through that process, if you are a growth-minded individual or if you at least acknowledge that uh, growth needs to happen and acknowledge that it's difficult and acknowledge that at the other end of of growth is, is, is awesome and start to make friends with what you don't know, rather than being afraid of what you don't know and allowing your ego to, you know, create this proud, um, you know, prideful type personality. You see so many trainers have or, or like they know everything and, you know, they, like the other side doesn't know anything. There's no value to it type of deal. If you can move past it, what happens if you're really good at what you do and you really enjoy what you do is you start to turn it on yourself. So all of a sudden now I'm training people and I'm asking why for them and I'm figuring things out and moving along the way and I'm starting to see that, whoa, I'm starting to impact people a little bit more. Then I start to ask those questions of myself, like, why am I doing what I'm doing with, with my workouts? Like, oh, sure, I'm definitely yes. consistent with my workouts. I'm working out all, you know, all the time. I don't miss a workout. My diet is, at the, you know, at the time I would have said I was super dialed and mm-hmm. all that other stuff. But why was I unable to enjoy you know, a family outing why was I so chained to the way I ate? Why were my Why was I so obsessive about my own workouts? And so you start to turn that, you know, it becomes a mirror that you see your own reflection in. And then at that moment, now you can stop, of course, because that becomes more difficult. It's always easier to point out in other people what you think is going to help, but much more difficult to do it to yourself. But, you know, again, if you're a growth-minded person, you start to turn it in on yourself, which then which is awesome uh, in the sense, it's not easy by the way, it's what's the most difficult thing. But it's awesome because once you start to reflect it in on yourself and then you start to ask those questions of yourself, you go from knowing information to knowing, like really knowing and feeling. Now you know and feel what your clients may be feeling and going through. You start to empathize a little bit differently and you become far more effective at what you do. And so through the course of the 20 years or whatever that I was training people and training trainers and doing a lot of stuff, I mean, towards the end of it, I was making truly impactful changes with people where I would have a client that would hire me who had no history of consistent health or fitness and had terrible, you know, eating habits, uh, you know, objectively, they, you know, their, their health was really bad. And, I would get these people to a point where they started to have an understanding of their own motivations and reasons and they started to make their own changes to their lifestyle to the point where it, they no longer needed uh, me to be there to 
motivate them and push them. Mm-hmm. They no longer needed to, you know, tyrannize themselves to force themselves where they create this strange uh, phenomena that all of us have, have or, or most of us are guilty of where, you know, they feel like they can't eat something and then all of a sudden they rebel and then they go off the wagon and they binge or whatever. And, you know, uh, these are people who 10 years later, I'm no longer training them. You know, they're not working out with any of their trainers and their, their lives are different. They, they, they exercise consistently now. They have great relationships with food. Things have fundamentally changed. And it was through examining those things. And that's why we talk so much about those aspects on the show, because I'll tell you what, one of the biggest things I realized uh, a long time ago was, you know, I could sit there and communicate 15 important ideas to you about improving your, your health and wellness. And I could just talk about them all day, like the top 15 things you should do. And if you do them, you're going to have all the answers. Yep. Uh, or, or I can communicate one thing effectively, truly effectively and impactfully so that you leave the conversation and you go, wow, that one thing makes so much sense and it's challenging, but it's not so challenging that I'm not going to do it. It's challenging enough to where it's going to give me meaning here to what I'm doing, but I think I can do it and it, and it makes enough sense and I really understand it to the point where I'm going to implement that. That is... The, that is the real, that is the most effective way to do it versus the 15, you know, things that communicate that you walk away with and go, that sounds cool. Not going to do it. Yep. Or, yeah. Or it doesn't really impact me or change anything. A hundred percent. So we've tried to communicate that as much as possible uh, through our show. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's resonated. It's, I think it's definitely resonated and we've turned our weakness uh, into our strength. Like I mentioned earlier, we look like three bros. Which is I get, which is cool because we're a little unassuming. They don't think we're going to talk yeah. about this stuff, and then we do. We talk about our feelings and stuff like that. Yeah, so. I love it. I love so. it. And and you know what? I have that same fire that you guys have because I'm like, it's not about your body. It's not about your the food. It's like the food and the stuff that we do with our bodies is just like the vehicle in which we act out all of this other stuff that we could go a lifetime being unconscious about. So like. I know that many people view like, for example, healthy eating or just eating foods that are good for the body and movement and exercise as things that are like, oh God, this is so annoying. This is something that I, you know, have to do. And they view it, I think at the onset as something that's going to be temporary. Like I'll just do this until I get the body and then I'll just go back to my old ways. So like I view it as a huge opportunity for like you're saying for growth and to completely change who you are. Right. And, and that's a really beautiful thing. Well, and nobody talks about it really. No. And think about it this way. So we'll use other examples so that maybe uh, other analogies so that people can kind of understand. Cause sometimes it sounds so esoteric and out there. I think people go like, well, what do you, what does that mean? Like, do I need to go see a therapist? And yeah. Like this isn't like, how, how do I do that? So here's an example. These studies have been done uh, repeatedly. They're, they're consistently in terms of uh, they're, they're consistent in terms of the the results that they get from these studies, and they're 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 great. Psychologists use them all the time, and psychiatrists use them all the time as examples because they're such great plain examples of how uh, humans tend to or how we all most of us tend to operate. So when you when they take people who win the lottery, so the, obviously you win the lottery, you know, ten million dollars, whatever. You've got all this money 
And they've actually studied and followed these people to see just how much their lives have changed as a result of this, you know, windfall of, of money. Now, for two years, uh, subjectively speaking, the people feel happier, more content, you know, things are better off. It's, and it's consistent. After about two years, they go right back to where they were before. Whether they, they do a good job with the money, which most of them don't. Most of them actually uh, lose most of the money or spend it poorly or whatever. But that's not the point. The point is, two years later, uh, all of them, if not most of them, are right back to their, their, their pre-lottery winning baseline. So in other words, the, the money uh, wasn't the answer to how they felt mm-hmm. about just It just got them more things. So... So that's one that's one example. I'll give you another example. I have I'll, I'll tell you a, a story, two stories, of two clients that I trained, um, uh, you know, uh, years ago. Very similar stories, but ext- but also very very different. So uh, I used to own a studio, as I said before, and it was by a hospital um, up here in, in California in Los Gatos. And uh, you know, being a, a good entrepreneur marketer, I would go over to the hospital and try and talk to people and, and talk about my services. I eventually made friends with the doctors and started training some of the surgeons and doctors there. And they had a gastric bypass uh, uh, program there. And for the, for the people listening who don't know what gastric bypass is, gastric bypass procedures are where it's typically for the, the severely obese. And it's usually uh, used as a last resort effort, or at least it's supposed to be. And this is where they take the stomach and they bypass it through the digestive process. So essentially disconnect it uh, from your body, and they create a small, very small stomach, just small, a small pouch, you know, maybe the size of a couple thumbs, uh, to replace your old stomach. And so you're forced to lose a lot of weight um, uh, when when you have this procedure. You just can't eat a lot. So if you're you know 100 pounds overweight, and you get a gastric bypass surgery. You know, you try to eat more than a few hundred calories at a time, and you'll probably vomit. It just won't work. And so it's very effective weight loss, extremely effective weight loss. The, the average person loses, I think, you know, 70 to 100 pounds uh, after doing this procedure, maybe more. So it's super effective. The most eff- for just purely objectively speaking for weight loss, one of the most effective things you could do is get the surgery. And so I got this client by the name of John who had this, uh, this uh, procedure. And he came and hired me about three months post-op. So... Three, he had, his goal was to lose about 100 pounds. Well, three months later, he'd lost, I think, like 40 pounds already. So he comes in and hires me, and he goes, listen, you know, I already lost four, 40 pounds. I had the pre-seizure three months ago. Doctor says I should probably work out, so here I am. So no problem. He hired me, and I trained him. And when you, when you train people, um, you know, typically you'll train them usually two or three days a week. So that's two or three hours a week. It's undivided attention. You spend a, a decent amount of time. And if you think about all the people in your life, that you spend time with. Think about all the people that you spend, you know, two or three, you know, separate hours of undivided attention with. Like, not very many people, honestly. Maybe your spouse. Yeah, that's it. You know, maybe, but not very many people. Maybe not even your best friends. Mm-hmm. So you start to, you get kind of close, or at least you, you talk a lot. And so people tend to share quite a bit uh, while you're training them, and it's you have great conversations. One of my favorite things about personal training. And so John, you know, he wasn't any different. He divulged quite a bit, and he was you know, on anxiety medications and depressed, very lonely, just uh, an unhappy uh, individual and happy person. Probably, you know, one of the reasons why he was severely obese, and this was his own admittance, he was, you know, medicating himself through food. 
Um, but, you know, uh, I trained him and he didn't come, you know, on time typically to his sessions. He would show up late. Uh, you know, his workouts were kind of through the motions. I think he felt like he was supposed to do it. Like, okay, this is part of my process. It's what I'm supposed to do. Um, and eventually he would miss appointments to the point where he missed so many that we just stopped training. So this was after about six months of training. Now, at the end of six months, he'd lost uh, most of the weight. I think he lost a grand total of 100 pounds of weight. Uh, but we stopped seeing each other. He stopped coming, and that was that. Now, a couple years later, maybe two or three years later, I actually ran into John uh, at the grocery store and walked up to him, and we had this long conversation. And John had – he looked like he gained back about maybe 60 or 70 pounds of the 100 pounds that he lost, which, you know, takes a decent amount of consistent effort. I mean – when you have uh, gastric bypass, it is possible to stretch out that little stomach so that mm-hmm. eventually you can, you can overeat again. And it's, you have to be consistent. It's probably painful. But John did it, and he gained back a lot of the weight, most of it. He was still anxious, you know, still depressed. He still had this standoffish kind of you know, uh, personality. You could tell by his posture. You know, he, he, just, he wasn't doing so well. And so we had that conversation, and then I never talked to him again. Now, I had another client, very similar situation. Her name was Susan, and she had 100 pounds to lose, so she was also severely obese. Now, she did not get gastric bypass. Instead, she came to me and sat down, and she was referred by a friend of hers who I had trained for a long time. And she trained with, and she came and she talked to me about training. She said, look, my friend told me, you're really good. I know this is something I need to do. I'm just, you know, sick and tired of you know, not being healthy. I use food as a drug and I'm, you know, uh, just depressed and it's just unhappy and I don't like the way I feel. I don't like the way things fit. I have, you know, my energy is low. However, I'm, I'm really embarrassed to work out. I really don't want to do this because I don't want people watching me, but I'm, I'm, I want to make this, this difference. I'd never worked out before in my life. I've always been overweight. I've never been in athletics. And so we had this great long conversation and, you know, luckily I had a private studio and we, I did have other trainers and clients, but I also had this room in the front of my gym. And so I told her, I said, look, here's what we'll do. I understand how you feel. Um, you're, you're self-conscious. So what we're going to do is when you come in, we're going to work out in this front room and that way we're alone, um, or at least mostly alone. It was an open area, but it was kind of separate. So we'll work out in there. So you don't have to be around anybody and I'm going to train you according to your current fitness level. And we're going to take this uh, very slow because it's a big change. And so she appreciated that. And, and she came in. She, she hired me. And, you know, sometimes, you know, she would call me and say, hey, Sal, tomorrow during our workout time, how, how many other trainers are going to be in the gym? And I'd look at the schedule and be like, oh, there's three other trainers in there. She'd be like, well, do you mind if we schedule to a different time where there's not any other trainers? And so I did this. I obliged many times and would change the time. And, but Susan never missed a workout. Never. She was the most consistent client I had. She showed up every single time. She showed up on time. And I, we trained and we talked. And there were, you know, lots of internal changes. I mean, very, you know, over the course of three years, she, she you know, I used to do these Christmas parties for the clients and for the, uh, for the staff. And she, she didn't go to the first two because she's just like, no way, I'm not, I don't want to come and, you know, embarrass or whatever. But the third one, she actually showed up. And, and this is because she would come to the gym and every once in a while there would be another trainer and client. And luckily we had a great environment and 
people would, you know, come talk to her and, you know, she started feeling more comfortable. And so she started showing up to the Christmas parties. She started becoming more outgoing. Uh, she had less anxiety, was actually doing things, you know, more things for herself. And over the course of three years, she lost a grand total of, I think, 25 pounds. So it was only a 25 pound weight loss over three years. However, the following year, the fourth year, uh, was, was remarkable. So after that third year, she goes to the Christmas party. She's starting to, you can start to see these changes start to happen within her. She's feeling better about herself. Her relationship to food is starting to change to where she's not medicating with food anymore. It's now, uh, you know, if she's feeling anxious or stressed out, um, she would go for walks or she would read or she started to, this is funny. She started learning to meditate. Mm -hmm. This was all on her own. Um, she started to learn uh, how to enjoy vegetables, which I'll get. We can get into, uh, you know, after after the story because I thought that was remarkable. And that following fourth year, she lost an additional sixty pounds. So she took her three years to lose twenty five pounds. The following year, she lost sixty pounds. So now she's down eighty five pounds, and she was making some incredible change. She started doing more exercise on her own. Started taking yoga classes. It was really awesome to see uh, all these incredible changes. She ended up moving. I lost contact with her. A couple of years later, I find her on Facebook. We, you know, we, we get in touch again. I start talking, you know, I, you know, how are you doing? You know, the typical conversation. And Susan was off her anxiety medications. She, uh, she'd met someone. So she was always, she said she was always lonely or whatever. She'd actually started dating. She became an entrepreneur. Um, she quit her job, started, you know, her own business. And took a was in the process of taking a personal training certification for her own knowledge still working out didn't hire a trainer did it on her own lost an additional something like 20 pounds and it was just remarkable now here's the difference between john and susan the difference is john looked at the the goal and that was it like okay lose 100 pounds when that happens I'm going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Everything will be solved for me. Not going to be a problem. Like afterwards, like that's it. Just lose the hundred pounds. Susan uh, identified that the hundred pounds was a side effect of her lifestyle. It was a very clear physical example, a representation of how she treated herself, or at least how she thought of herself, or how she cared for herself. And so she aimed at changing those things you know, taking care of herself as if she were taking care of someone she actually cared about. That's a big one. Yes. Uh, She started to identify that she viewed food in a way and treated food in a way that was not serving her. So, you know, an example would be the vegetables. She hated vegetables, couldn't. In fact, they made her gag. And over the, she knew how they were supposed to be healthy. She knew that, you know, they were probably good for her. She probably should eat them. And just using the examples of vegetables, which is great. I love talking about this one. You know, we would have these conversations and I said, you know, I said, what's funny is, you know, when I've traveled in the past and I've gone to other countries and I've gone to Asian countries and you walk into some of these markets and the uh, these fish markets, for example, and the, the smell of fish is overwhelming. And in Western societies, we may consider that as like repulsive. But in those societies, it's not considered repulsive. Now, why is that? Well, it's not because it's repulsive or not repulsive. It's because our association with that smell is to be repulsed. Their association with that smell is it's, it's the market. And so I said, what I want you to do when you eat vegetables is what you're focusing on is 
the just the taste of it, which taste is one aspect of food. That's one thing about food that food gives you. It's a sign, right? Like it tastes a particular way. But there's so much about food that has nothing to do with taste. So much that, you know, I mean, come on. A lot of our decisions for eating have nothing to do with taste, have more to do with, you know, our emotion or anxiety or, or the fact that we're in a particular place or time like when I'm at the movies, popcorn just seems to sound good when I'm at the movies. And at no other time do I sit there and crave popcorn, right? So I said, you know, what I want you to do is I want you to be mindful. Try eating some vegetables. Pay attention to how you feel before, during, and after. And then also how you feel the day after. And so she started to notice that, wow, when I eat vegetables, I don't have energy crashes. I feel better. My mood seems to be more stable. My digestion is better. I'm more satiated. Um, the next day I feel better. I have better sleep. Wow, look, my skin is starting to improve. And she starts making all these connections. Well, very slowly what ends up happening is when you're making those positive connections to food, you start to perceive those foods as desirable. And for people listening right now that think that that's malarkey, um, food manufacturers spend billions of dollars on what I'm talking about right now. They know this. They're 100%. Like when you watch a beer commercial – it's, you know, hot girls in the background and it's a party and everybody's having a great time. You know, they know that, that those associations with their product are going to increase its desirability. Like you'll never see somebody, a commercial with food and there's like a people with, you know, you know diarrhea in a toilet or throwing up. They would never <laughs> do that because that association would make that food undesirable. People know this and it's part of it. It's part of why we quote unquote crave certain foods. The problem is we just made these other connections to it and we haven't made these other ones. So Susan made these connections and eventually started to not only tolerate vegetables, she she actually started to enjoy vegetables and it got to the point where she craved vegetables because she was able to make those connections and made those changes. And so the, the side effect of all that, the result of treating herself like someone she cared about and making those positive connections and then also making negative connections with other foods that didn't make her feel so good or whatever was a side effect that was over a hundred pound weight loss forever, like permanent. Mm. And, 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 and think about it this way. You don't have to, eating doesn't have to be a struggle or exercise doesn't have to be a struggle when you realize, okay, because here's the truth, you realize and you will realize if you take the time to do this that it's something you want to do, okay? All of us want to do it. And I know there's people listening like, no, I don't. I don't want to do that. I just want to sit on the couch and eat donuts. Yeah. That's actually not true. That's not true at all. What you, uh, you, you think you want to do it, but the reality is the reason why you put yourself on a diet, the reason why when you're on a diet, you say things like, I can't eat that. I can't have that. I, I have to work out is because you have created this this uh, psychological phenomena within yourself where you've split yourself into two. You've gone through the trouble of creating a version of you that's tyrannical and a dictator that tells you, don't eat that, don't do this, do this. And so when people ask you if you want to eat these things, you say, I can't, rather, which is weird. Like, why can't you? you can, of yeah. course you can't. Do whatever the hell you want. Why are you saying you can't? Who says you can't? Oh, you say you can't. Realize that you've created that situation and that dictator, that version of yourself, because you found enough value to put yourself through that kind of pain. Now, in the short term, it's effective. In the short term, I can 
force myself. How funny is that? Does that sound right? How the hell do I do that? Anyway, (laughs) I can force myself to make the to to eat a particular way. Uh, Why do I do that? Because it's important enough that I create that scenario, which is successful in the short term, but in the long term, extremely unsuccessful. In the long term, how does anybody behave when they're being dictated uh, to? When they're being tyrannized, they rebel. And how does a rebellion look? It is a massive, you know, swinging back of the pendulum. It is a massive response. It is a irrational response. You push someone hard enough and you, it's like when you raise a child mm-hmm. and you make everything super, super, super strict. It's like those kids that grow up in those ultra fundamental religious homes and then they go to college and then they just go wild. You do that. That's why you binge after a diet. You know, it's because you've been tyrannized by yourself. Then you go off the wagon. You're like, screw this. I'm rebelling. And then you go nuts and you start. So realize that it's important enough for you to do that, all that craziness, which really literally means you want to. You want to. You see the value. Now, because you want to do these things doesn't mean that you deny or pretend like you don't enjoy the flavor of things or you don't enjoy the temporary feeling of certain things. Like it tastes good and it feels good to eat cupcakes sometimes. That is 100% correct. But most of the time, I realize that, yes, that cupcake tastes really damn good. Probably going to feel really good to eat it right now. However, uh, I'm probably not going to feel as good later on. Probably not going to feel good tomorrow. And if I continue to eat in that way, the result of it is going to be poor health and a poor quality of life. So the reality is I don't want that cupcake. Not that I can't have it. I don't want it. Well, it becomes uh, and, a choice versus a demand that we put on is, ourselves. And, and that is empowering. Mm-hmm. And people like we have to have autonomy. But here's the other thing. Challenge and sacrifice is what gives life meaning. So when I gave the example of the, the lottery runners or the example of John and Susan, the difference between John and Susan was Susan embraced the challenge, embraced the sacrifice, which gave what she was doing meaning, which made it impactful, which made it long lasting. John, uh, his views were a little bit different. Didn't understand the sacrifice, didn't understand the challenge, didn't understand the meaning. It was all about the goal. Once you get to the goal, now what? Where do I go from here? And the result of that is uh, it's not long-lasting. You tend to rebel. You feel like you're being forced, whether it's by surgery or by whatever. Um, And it's just not – same thing with the lottery winners. Like there was no challenge. There was no – you know, and I'm not – that's not to say that you can't find challenge in different things. I'm just – using examples that where you see, you know, more of this kind of stuff, but that's really what it's all about. So when you realize that, you know, okay, I'm not eating these particular foods, what's the sacrifice? Well, I'm sacrificing the taste and the feeling, which means I'm sacrificing my present self. But what am I sacrificing my present self for? Oh, I know my future self. I'm sacrificing for my future self. And do I want to do that? I do want to do that because I've gone through the trouble of creating this tyrannical version of myself that's telling me not to do it. So I'm actually choosing to not eat these things. Now, if we if, now that doesn't mean that you eat, you know, like an orthorexic mm-hmm. either, because, again, food has many different uh, things that it offers us. Food is uh, cultural. I mean, we've. We've surrounded, you know, food with ceremony and religion and family and friends and community and connection for thousands of years. Those are also tremendously beneficial that, you know, 
aspects of food. So let's say I'm in that scenario where I'm going to, I'm presented with that cupcake again. Hey Sal, do you want to have a cupcake? And I'm in a situation where I'm with my friends. Maybe it's a birthday party. Maybe someone made it for me homemade. Maybe my mom made it. Maybe it's a special cupcake like the ones she used to make when I was a kid. We're having a great conversation um, and I'm bonding with people or whatever. And I realized that, okay, at this moment, I'm sacrificing uh, my future self because I'm probably not going to feel as good, probably not as good for my health, my physical health. However, I'm going to be enjoying the flavor. Maybe I'm enjoying the people around me. We're bonding. And at this moment, that's more valuable to me. So, yes, I want that cupcake. And then I eat it. Now, what's, what's, what, it, what life is probably going to look like when you start to – view food and exercise and things in that particular way, and, I'll, and this is 100% true for everybody, I'll make this argument all day long, is for the most part, for the most, most part, a majority of the time, you're not going to want that cupcake or you're not going to want that pizza or you're not going to want that beer or that wine or whatever, for the most part, because for the most part, in most situations, it's probably not going to be worth it to you if you're really caring about yourself like if, as if you were caring for someone that you actually cared about, for the most part, probably not going to benefit you and it's probably worth the sacrifice of not tasting that food and not feeling the texture of it and enjoying it at that moment. So for the most part, you're going to say, nah, I don't want it. But sometimes, every once in a while, you're going to say, you know what? I do want that and right now it's worth it. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what balance is all about and that is what real health is all about. And so when people talk about looking good and looking better and being aesthetic and I want to lose weight and all that stuff, you know, true health and true wellness, if we were to close our eyes, you know, right now, if people are listening to the podcast right now and you close your eyes and you could uh, just imagine yourself in a truly healthy state True health and wellness in all aspects, uh, physical, you know, mental, spiritual. You feel at peace. You're calm. No anxiety, no depression, no stress. You feel good. You're, you're grateful for things like in a true state of health and wellness. OK, what does the physical representation of that look like? Like, what do you think now that you understand, like you're in that state of mind where you're like, OK, I could see what that would feel like. What do you think that would look like? I'll tell you what that looks like every time. Relatively fit relatively lean you're not going to be overweight you're not going to be shredded either because by the mm -hmm. way that's not very healthy but you're going to be pretty lean you're going to be pretty mobile you're going to have a decent amount of strength a decent amount of stamina you're going to look pretty damn good in fact you're probably going to look better than you ever have in your entire life and so realize that realize that that goal of looking a particular way isn't really a goal it's a side effect of something else exactly once you start to understand that, uh, it really starts to change your approach to nutrition and training. And, you know, and this doesn't mean that you don't learn about, you know, macronutrients mm -hmm. and what the food. You need to have that information. I mean, I recommend everybody start by tracking their food. I recommend everybody understand calories and everybody understand proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. Everybody understand what's usually healthy for you, what's not. You got to learn all that. You got to have that information. But uh, understand it in the, in the context of what we just talked about and, and then watch what happens. Watch your progress. It might take you yeah, – sure, you might not lose 30 pounds in, in 60 days, mm -hmm. but at some point you will and then it's gone forever and you're going to feel 
incredible and it won't be as uh like a struggle like that's nowhere to it's yeah. really not live long term you know yeah totally and that's what i always tell people people come to me and they say i have a goal by x date i need to lose this much weight and in our society and i know you guys talk about this a lot too that instant gratification and things that happen in 10 days 30 days 60 days uh, are all you know praised and by taking the long game which is what you're talking about, we can really find out so much more about ourselves. We can really change who we are in the process. And we can learn to trust that what we're doing will get us to where we are eventually. Because, you know, the diet industry tells us, like that first story you told, lose the weight, then, you're, then your whole life is going to change. You're not going to have any problems anymore. Things are going to be perfect. And then what happens is that you get to that weight and you're like, wait, now I'm just smaller. That's right. But, look, but I, look, at it, look at it this way, okay? Here's here's all two things. First off, it's not the long it's not the 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 long game in the sense that it it typically takes longer to get these dramatic results if you do it the way I'm discussing mm-hmm. only because you're making real uh long-lasting fundamental changes in yourself. And real changes typically, not always, look, sometimes people have a you know, a moment of clarity. You know, sometimes we have that, whoa, that aha moment where it's like, okay, I'm quitting smoking. I'm changing my life. I'm, you know, lectures. Sometimes that happens. I've seen it. It's just not as common because real change is hard. Like it just is. Yeah. It's, it's just more difficult. Whenever you change, you're, you're literally, you know, killing your old version of yourself. You're shedding your old self, your old skin. And that's scary. Let's be honest. It's and it's scary. painful. It's it's painful. It's scary. It's the unknown. Nobody likes the unknown. Everybody likes things to be predictable. So it does tend to take a little bit longer, but it doesn't have to. So it depends on you. Like how fast of a growth-minded individual are you and how impactful and meaningful are these things that you're understanding about yourself? Uh, that'll dictate how long it takes. So some people can do it very quickly. Most people, uh, it takes a little bit longer. As far as the industry is concerned, they are... Uh, you know what, what the industry is doing is they're catering to or talking to our uh, love of expediency. Yes. Our our desire for uh, for quick and fast. So all they're doing is they're taking advantage of a, a natural flaw in in humans in that we want things uh, to be done fast. But which is like I said, it can happen fast. But most meaningful change requires a few different things. It requires you to to move through a few stages of, uh, of learning and understanding. Like, you know, typically where we start off with our knowing of, or understanding of things is we're in a state of unconscious incompetence. It's usually where we start off. So like we're, we're unconsciously incompetent or ignorant. We, we don't know that we don't know. We just don't know that we don't have uh, the right information. And so the next stage is when you start to say to yourself like, okay, I don't have things figured out. Let me start to learn a little bit more. And then you start to realize, wow, I don't know. Uh, nearly as much uh, as I as I as I thought I did. In fact, I know I, don't, I realize now I don't know a lot, and that's the next stage, which is conscious incompetence. Now you're consciously aware of the fact that you don't know. Then you move to the third stage, which is consciously competent. So now what you're doing is you're tracking your food, you're you're structuring your workouts, uh, you're consciously trying to be competent. Okay, I know I should probably this this and this. I should probably avoid this, this, and this, I should probably be active on these days and do this kind of workout. And so you have to consciously make yourself 
aware of what you're doing. But then you eventually move to the fourth stage, which is unconscious competence. And this is where things happen on a much more automatic, intuitive uh, type of basis. This is like, it's like walking. Like when you get up and walk, are you thinking about walking? Are you thinking about, you know, okay, left foot, step forward, heel first, toe next, you know, right foot. Like, no, you just walk, right? But at some point, you know, if you go back far enough, when you were learning how to walk, it was conscious. Like you had to consciously think about what you were doing to try to walk and then eventually became this automatic thing. And so we have to go, we go through those stages when we're learning and those stages uh, typically require a certain level of realization or pain because growth uh, is painful. Growth isn't, you know, we like to be where we're at. We like yeah. to stay where we're at. It's comfortable. So to enter, and usually you know, the impetus to get us to move to the next level or at least the impetus to uh, to try to move to the next level or consider is the is pain. It's typically yes. some kind of pain. So like, oh, I'm uncomfortable in my clothes or wow, I went to go play with my kids and I was out of breath or man, my digestion is all over the place or maybe even worse. Maybe the doctor tells you, hey, look, you're going to have another heart attack or whatever. And so that pushes you out of your comfort zone. Then you got to move through those stages. And sometimes that can take time. But I tell you what, like, realize this, like, realize that for most of your life, if not your entire life, especially if you've grown up and because what we're talking about is a, you know, what they call them first world problems. Yeah, uh, you know, it's totally. a modern, you know, modern Western society issue, right? Like, like in modern Western societies, uh, people don't die of starvation. They just, I mean, I'm sure some people do, but it's super rare, like far more people, like far by a magnitude of like, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people die because of too much food. Like obesity kills way more people in modern Western societies than starvation does. Uh, most people in modern Western societies have never felt hungry. Never, never. And, I, and I, again, and this is probably controversial, right? People are probably shaking their head be like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm hungry every day at noon. You're not hungry. You're, you're, you have a craving. Totally different. Totally different. Mm -hmm. Your the, the human body evolved, literally evolved. There's no. This is almost. There's no debate about this. To go for long periods of time without food, very long periods of time. For most of human civilization, people, you know, if we had food, we ate it. If we didn't, because we couldn't get it, we didn't eat. It's just just the way it was. Like we killed something, we ate the hell out of it, and then we went days until we tracked down and hunted and killed something else or weeks. In fact, the human body uh, can go, and, and, and lots of cultures do this, by the way. Eastern medicine does this. Ayurvedic medicine does this. Eastern European uh, doctors even recommend this. People will fast for three or four weeks. It's been studied uh, in Western medicine as well. In fact, there's lots of incredible uh, science surrounding this. There are no negative If you're healthy and you fast for two weeks, there's no negative effects. In fact, there's lots of health, healthy effects. Now, I'm not advocating for fasting. That's a completely different subject and topic. Um, and you know, we could get into that and I find that fascinating, but what that highlights is that, that the human humans basically evolved to be okay without food for, you know, days, at least days, right? We've never, I mean, how, how many people do you know that have gone longer than 12 hours without food ever in their entire lives? Probably, Probably no one. Yeah. Nope. So we've never felt hunger. What we felt is cravings and to know the difference between the two, like, you know, when you think you're hungry, you know, when you're talking with your friends, you're like, oh, I'm starving. It's lunchtime. And then you have this conversation. Well, what do you want to eat? Oh, let's go eat it. You know, 
let's go eat a Chipotle. And eh, no, I'm not in the mood for that. How about, you know, in and out burger? Eh, I'm not in the mood for that. How about yeah. that's not hunger. That's a crazy. You'll eat language. anything if you're hungry. If you're hungry, you're hungry. And you'll eat foods, right? Yes. So we've never felt hungry before. So that right there, we're completely disconnected from a very natural signal that we're supposed to feel. Okay. We're supposed to feel it's like, imagine, like, imagine if people never felt sad, like think, because yeah. people think, people think hunger is like this negative feeling like you should never feel hungry. No, no, no. That's bullshit. Like that's a real feeling. Humans are supposed to have it. We're supposed to have a wide spectrum of feelings. Imagine if people never felt sad. Would happy have the same meaning? Would we be motivated to change things sometimes because we lack sadness? Would we be able to mourn things or would we be able to create meaning to things that no, like we're supposed to feel sad some, mm-hmm. sometimes. We're supposed to feel hungry sometimes. So completely disconnected from that signal. So we have no idea what it's like to feel hungry. So that alone is a massive problem with our how we, you know, view food and how we eat food. Look at here's a second here's a second example. Um food, I, I think something like seventy or eighty percent of uh, the average American's food intake is made up of highly palatable, highly processed foods. So the majority, the vast majority uh, you know, more than two thirds of what you eat on a daily basis. Some, a lot of people, you know, closer to hundred percent are, is made up of foods that have this long shelf life or that come in a wrapper or that, you know, you, you know, come in a, a can or a box or whatever. So now some, you know, people are saying, well, why is that bad? Well, okay. We could talk about how it's probably not as healthy. You know, they have ingredients that probably aren't as good for your body, blah, 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 blah. But that's not what I'm talking about here. We can talk about that as well, but that's not what that's not the, the point that I'm trying to make. Foods that are highly processed are scientifically engineered, okay? Lots of money goes into engineering these foods to override your body's natural systems of satiety. It's like, hyperpalatability right there. A hundred percent. Like in, 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 I know, I know the industry. I've been in the fitness industry for a long time. I know the supplement industry spends a lot of money on this. I've interviewed people from the food industry. When they go to make a Cheeto, there are millions and millions of dollars invested in the right flavor, the right texture, the right crunch, the right color, the right smell, like everything that goes, the, the way the bag looks, the way the bag opens, uh, you know, the way they, everything. So much money goes into investing, uh, making this thing uh, be able to overcome and override your body's natural systems of satiety. Because you do have them, you do. Your body actually has a natural limiter that will tell you when you're, you need to stop eating. Now, we, we, we destroy that because most of the food we eat is scientifically designed to override that. And here's an example of that. You could take... If I took a bunch of plain white baked potatoes, no salt, no butter, nothing, just boiled plain white baked potatoes, and I put that in front of people, someone and I say, okay, I want you to eat 1,500 calories of baked potato. I'm going to give you uh, you know, 30 minutes. Go. That would be very difficult for a lot of people. They, it would be hard. After like two or three baked potatoes, they oh, like, I can't, I can't eat anymore, right? I, I just can't stuff myself anymore. Maybe they would push more in there, but they'd feel nauseous and sick, and they'd have to stop. Well, that's that's called uh, that that's your that's a natural limiter. That's your, you know, uh, you, you get uh, what's called palate fatigue. It's actually a scientific term for it. You don't want to eat anymore. That's your that's your body's natural systems of satiety. Now, 
what if instead of plain white, no salt, no butter, boiled baked potato, I handed someone a bag of potato chips? What if I said to someone, here, eat this potato in the form of a fried, salted chip, and I said, eat 1,500 calories or more in under 30 minutes, go. Most people will be able to do it, no problem. Easy, piece of cake. That is a fantastic example of how processed foods override those systems. So never feeling hungry and not understanding what that feels like and not being connected to that natural signal and only being connected to cravings, which typically come from emotion or feeling or location, like where you're at or time or all these other things, and none none of them having to do with hunger, and eating most of your food in the form of something that was designed by scientists to completely override your body's natural systems of satiety well yeah you're not there's, you're, you're not you're not gonna be able to listen to your body because you can't trust your signals you're definitely gonna overweight be overweight you're definitely gonna overeat you're definitely not gonna pick foods that are better for you your your it's your health is gonna suffer and that's the that's what we see everywhere so it's not as easy as just saying eat less calories you know do this diet do this workout like that's a very temporary solution it is, it, is a, uh, it is a punishment that we treat ourselves with. Yeah, it is not yeah. learning how to care about ourselves. It is not identifying this, these things that I'm talking about and addressing them and connecting to our bodies. It's not listening to our bodies. And, of course, it's going to fail. It's going to fail every time, guaranteed. Yeah. You're not going to succeed that way unless you become, like, super fanatical, obsessive, orthorexic, in which case you're going to lose weight, you're going to get lean, you're still not going to be healthy. Yeah. And it's not even just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, which I know is the premise of intuitive eating. And a lot of the women that I work with uh, come to me and they say, I've been doing intuitive eating for so long and it's not working for me. And I'm like, well, that promise now, I feel like in the body positive community, in maybe people who are trying to heal themselves from eating disorders, it seems like a great idea. But then I hear people say, well, my body's telling me to eat, you know, cake all day and I'm hungry for that. And now I feel like shit and now I don't know what to do. So I totally agree with what you guys say of like, you need to start with some structure, some tracking, and then you can become intuitive. But like that comes later. It does come later. And it's, it's you have to learn. Yes. About your body's signals first, because you don't you have no idea what, what they are. And, and they're skewed again by those highly processed, highly palatable foods, even health foods, you know, yeah. like, oh, I eat protein bars all day. Well, or Lara bars, that, delicious, yeah, that, that's you know? Also, yeah, the hyper, hyper palatable, it's also extremely processed. So yes. if you, I mean, here's the deal. I've, I've done this with clients many times. If you just ate whole natural foods, you, you probably see a lot of progress just yes. by, by. Absolutely. That's what I try to tell people too. Like if you just stick to the whole natural foods, things are going to be a lot easier because it's really easy to eat five slices of cake when you're full. But mm-hmm. it's harder to eat like five apples even when you're hungry. That's right. That's you know? right. So, so you know, what I recommend, and, you know, again, there's a lot of information and hopefully, you know, people are listening and it's starting to resonate mm-hmm. and make sense as to why they've been, been so challenged in the past and why the approach that they've done in the past didn't work. And so, you know, here's some actionable items, okay? Um, you start off with, and this is if you're a healthy individual, okay? And also, you know, I have to say this, I'm not a doctor, so you make sure you clear this with a medical professional. But I recommend for most people, unless the, your, your, your relationship to food is more on the orthorexic side or the bulimic or anorexic side, in which case what I'm about to say would be the exact opposite of what you should do. But if for most healthy individuals, 
I recommend attempting a fast, 24, 48-hour fast, not for the weight loss effects, not because you're not eating calories, but just to disconnect from food long enough so that you could become start to become a little bit more aware of some of those signals. So, and it's not a weight loss tool. If you if you start to view fasting like a weight loss tool, well, you're on your road down towards another eating disorder and yeah. it's not going to solve any of your problems. So start off with a, with a 24, 48-hour fast. Do that. Disconnect those chains, those, those, those ties you have to food, whether they be emotional, whatever. It's going to be challenging, I promise you. Uh, for many of you, it's going to be challenging because what do I do with three hours of my day when I'm not eating? And, oh, I'm surrounded by people eating and I feel like, and oh, my God, I didn't realize that. If I don't eat when I'm anxious, now what do I do? And it reveals a lot. Um, yes. <laughs> it also, on a physical level, it, uh, re, it, it cleanses your palate in the sense that it uh, reopens up receptors that respond to sugars and salt and palatable things. And you'll find that when you come out of a fast, a fruit all of a sudden tastes so much more sweet. And, you know, whole natural foods all of a sudden become much more flavorful because uh, the body does down-regulate receptors and change how it perceives things when you're constantly exposing it to hyper-palatable hyper foods. Yes. When you go back to eating, start tracking your food. Don't even aim for any goals yet. Just track. Tracking alone brings another level of awareness. So before you eat something, you have the food in front of you. Take out your phone with your app, and it's super easy. I remember back in the day, I used to have to teach clients how to write this down, and they had to have a book, and it's so much easier now, right? You have your app. So right before you eat, stop and enter into your app what you're going to eat. No judgment. Don't judge it. Don't, you know, I'm not supposed to eat this. I'm not supposed to eat that. Just write it in there, and if it changes your mind and you want to eat something different afterwards, because sometimes that happens, because simply slowing down and stopping sometimes gives you enough time to be like, all right, I better not eat that donut. Like, I'm entering it now. I'm thinking about it. I better not. So, and if that happens, that's fine too, but just track. That's all you got to do. Just track. As you're tracking, give yourself a week or two and start to realize in, in your trends, oh, okay, it looks like on average I'm consuming 1800 calories it looks like my protein intake is around you know whatever 100 grams and this my fat is here my carbs are here looks like my sugar is a little you know it's, okay this is my number for sugar that may seem like it's a little high or whatever start to pay attention then start to connect that to how you feel like okay i'm going to change something for the next 2 days i'm going to see if i can reduce my sugar intake or for the next couple days i'm going to uh eat less uh processed foods or for the next couple of days, I'm going to add food. I'm going to add vegetables. So now I'm going to start every meal with, vet, with, with maybe a serving of vegetables. Or what I'm going to do now is I'm going to drink more water or whatever. Make some changes that you think are going to benefit you. Start slow. Challenge yourself enough so that it, it's challenging. But don't challenge yourself so far that you think that it's not reasonable for yourself. So sometimes the changes are so small that you may be even embarrassed to talk about them. I don't care. It may be literally add one extra glass of water a day. Like, that's fine. Yeah. Like, just start with something you know you can be consistent. Start to connect those things to how you feel, little by little. Then as you start to do that, maybe start to work with your calories a little bit. Like, okay, my goal is to lose weight. I know I probably should eat a little bit less, so I'm starting to connect a few things. I'm going to drop 100 calories on average from my diet. I'm going to play with that. And just start to move things around and play with them and educate yourself if you feel like you're not sure what you need to do. And start to connect those things with how you feel. Connect them to the negatives, like, oh, I feel tired. Oh, I don't feel whatever. But also connect the positives. When I eat this, I feel good. When I eat that, my digestion is better. Uh, I notice I wake up easier. Like, make all these connections 
little by little and start to play with and manipulate some of those uh, some of those things in your foods. Educate yourself, and over that over a period of time, what you'll find yourself doing is starting to realize this: I feel better when I eat this way. I feel worse when I eat this way. And then slowly, very slowly, remove yourself from tracking. Like, okay, Sundays is a no tracking day. Now, keep in mind when you do that, usually it turns into a eat whatever the hell I want binge type of day. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. Don't judge yourself. Just be aware of it. And if it goes out, if you feel like it's, uh, you know, it's kind of getting out of hand and I, I you know, I'm, I'm having a struggle, go back to tracking till you feel good again. You start to make those connections and then start to come off the, the tracking and go more intuitive and little by little remove yourself from tracking. Now, every once in a while, you're going to have to start tracking again or in, just to become more aware again. So like, okay, now I, I don't track at all, all week long. And then you might find yourself a few months later, like, Ooh, I'm not feeling so good. Uh, you know, I've been making these food choices and I feel like I'm, you know, I'm going to start tracking again just so I can start, you know, reestablishing some awareness and just do that kind of a process. In the meantime, as far as exercise is concerned, you know, uh, you know, invest in a, if you have the money in a quality trainer, I can, they're worth their weight in gold. Hire somebody who knows what they're doing because exercise uh, can be applied in a very effective, efficient way or it can be applied in extremely inefficient, ineffective ways where you damage your metabolism and hurt yourself and, you know, burn yourself out and all that stuff. So invest in a high quality trainer if you don't have, because that's an expensive luxury for some people, if you don't have the funds for something like that, invest in getting a program. You can buy a program made by people who have integrity or whatever. We offer programs Mm -hmm. ourselves called MAPS. So you can invest in something like that. So at least you have something you can follow and then start right there. Give yourself a little bit of time and the entire time remind yourself and treat yourself as if you were somebody that you cared about. Like that's a very important thing to understand. And when you take care of somebody that you actually care about, that doesn't mean you let them do whatever they want all the time. Like I don't let my kids do whatever they want because that's, I'm not taking care of them if I do that. Like they'll become spoiled. They'll become, they need a little bit of structure. So that means every once in a while you say to yourself like, okay, I need a little bit of structure. Here's what I need to do. But it also means sometimes you say, hey, you know what? I'm going out with my friends tonight. I'm going to enjoy myself. We're bonding, whatever. And that's the, that's the process that sometimes takes a little while, but that's the process that leads to real meaningful change that stays with you forever. Exactly. And, you know, it's a very open process too. Like, oh, let me just do this and let me see what happens. You know, and usually it gets to that point where you have a healthy relationship with food. You can be intuitive and you feel great. And as a byproduct, you look great too. Yes, exactly. So I have one more question. I'm not sure if you have time for just one more. Okay. So something that I try to talk about too is how we, I know you have a daughter. Um, Something that is so important to me and I'm actually developing local workshops about this is how to speak to children and specifically daughters about body image. Mm, so I'm yeah. wondering, cause that's something that, you know, I grew up with eating disorders and, um, you know, I had bulimia, a little bit of anorexia and I just, you know, my parents gave me everything. Um, but I was never taught. And I don't think a lot of people are ever taught how to actually speak to their kids in order for them to grow up with a really positive body image for them to have a high self-worth and self-esteem. So I'm wondering for you, for your own kids and specifically your daughter, how you instill those things. Right. So, um, 
before I talk about what you should communicate to what your to your kids, I'll talk about two things that are more important than what you say to your kids. Uh, the first thing is uh, how you live, okay? How things are in your home. Children learn far more from what they observe um, and from behaviors and actions and and the culture of your home than they do from the words that you preach to them. Way more, like way more. That's why we end up turning into our parents. Like they preach to us, but then afterwards we end up, oh, I realize I'm acting a lot like my dad or my mom or whatever. So number one, you're you're in a you're in a losing battle if you're going to preach to your kid about eating healthy and you know this is what we should you know what's supposed to do and then you don't do it or your culture in your home doesn't um, reflect that value. So your values have to be reflective of your actions and the culture. So what does that mean? Well, when we eat dinner, um, we have first off the dinners that we serve are centered around whole natural foods. Uh, we serve in a in a way that highlights the um, the pr- how we prioritize particular types of food. So, when I'm feeding my kids and myself, we start with vegetables. Typically, it's the first course that we eat. Now, why is that the first course? Well, and sometimes it isn't, depending on the activity level of my kids. If I feel like they need more calories or whatever, we're going to go on a long hike and whatever. But for the most part, I say that I see that as being uh, a priority for my children to eat. Mainly because, yes, vegetables are healthy, but also because it's uh, typically um, I don't have to prioritize things like starches. That typically takes care of itself. Like kids tend to enjoy eating starches just like adults do. So I don't have to make that a priority. So first course, everybody just eats vegetables. It's not a discussion. Like I don't sit there and go, okay, kids, here's why we're eating vegetables first. Like if they ask me, I'll tell them and they have asked me, but I just this is just the way we are. It's just. It's just the culture of my home. So we start with vegetables. Everybody eats their vegetables. Then comes the, the second course, which is typically our protein and fat. So that may be you know, meat or fish or something along those lines. We'll eat that. And then the third course is either fruit or starches. Um, uh, and, and that'll be the, the third course. Now, we don't progress to the next course until we finish the first course. Now, it's not, a, it's not a matter of finish your plate or you can't you know, leave the table or you're grounded. That's not, the, that's not what we talk about. It's literally uh, the food on, don't waste the food on your plate. If you're hungry enough to eat other food, then you should consume this first so we don't waste it, and then we'll move on to the next meal, if it has to be a discussion at all. And, and no, no joke, okay? That's a discussion that you have in the beginning a few times and then it's no longer a discussion just the way we eat like mm-hmm. foods and I don't give them by the way it's not like I'm putting ab- absurd amounts of food in front of them knowing I'm going to challenge the hell out of them like if yeah. you have a child that that doesn't like certain foods and you know it's going to be a bit of a struggle just give them a tiny bit like one piece of broccoli you know what I mean or a little tiny bit of meat like let them give them enough that they you know eat it but not so much that you're going to have a fight over it like you want them to be challenged and learn that whatever but you don't also want to create this this big drama about it but the less dramatic uh the situation is the better the less big of a deal it is the better because again it's just the culture here's the second thing that is that is almost as important is how parents talk about themselves children internalize that far more than almost anything else maybe far more even than how you may may maybe talk to them unless you're really mean to them for example which is obvious by the way i don't i think i don't have to communicate like don't tell your kids they're fat and don't tell your kids 
you know, they don't look good and don't tell your kids they're worthless. Like, that's obvious. I, I, yeah. I hope I don't have to communicate that. But let me tell you something. If your daughter and you're doing everything right and the culture is great in the house and you're all eating healthy and your, your, your daughter overhears you saying, oh, I'm so fat or God, I can't wear this shirt. It makes me look fat or I need to go on a diet, honey, because summer's coming around and I've got this blubber around my stomach or I don't like the way I look or I'm ugly or I, and, I, and moms and dads say this about themselves in front of the kids all the time. Yes. That will cause, that is a recipe for your child internalizing what you're saying. They will apply it to themselves. And that's where a lot of disorders uh, stem from. So those are the two most important things. Now, what do you tell your kids? Just be honest. Be honest about your, just be totally honest. Like kids are okay with you being honest. There's no need to, to sugarcoat or lie or, you know, tell your kids like, Hey, you know, hey, dad, why don't we eat? Like, I went over to my friend's house. And I, you know, I've had this conversation with my kids. Oh, I went over to my friend's house, and they have, like, cookies and stuff. You know, they have dessert after dinner every single night, and I like that. Like, why don't we have dessert after dinner every single night? And I'll say, well, you know, when I eat dessert, personally, uh, a lot, I just notice I just don't feel as good. Kind of throws off my digestion, and I'll, I'll go into detail. I'm very honest with them. Like, here's what happens to my stomach, and I just don't feel good. And also, you know, eating lots of sugar might not make you feel as sharp as you could so that you can maybe perform as well when you're at school and you're trying to think and you're trying to do well or trying to learn. Or maybe when you're playing sports, you might have an energy crash. It's also, you know, not as good for your your teeth. It's just not as healthy uh, for your body to eat that often, to eat dessert like that that often. So we just don't we just don't have it in the house because, you know, it's just not that good for us. That's all. That's it. Just yeah. super honest. Yeah. No and, and something I, that you say too that really resonated with me is to differentiate the body image from the self image. That they're totally. two separate things and that we can have a positive, you know, self image unconditionally that is separate you, you know, from the body. Well, here's the thing like, I mean, absolutely. Like, you, you're not fat. You have fat, right? Yeah. I've heard that before. But that's, that's, that's literally what I mean. So let's say you have a kid that has a, a, a body image issue for whatever you're doing everything right cultures in the house is good you're eating good you, you're very honest but let's say your kid is you know like really skinny and they get teased or maybe they get they're a little bit chubby sometimes it happens before puberty or whatever and they're a little bit on the heavier side or maybe they have some other insecurity and they come to you and they say you know you know you know so and so said you know i you know i'm i'm chubby and you know i'll say something like well okay well, how does that make you feel that's kind of mean and yeah we talk about it and then they may say they may say something like, "Well, I think I am chubby," and I may say something like, "Well, do you know you so you think you have a you know a little bit of uh, you know if you feel like you're squishy or whatever?" Yeah, I say, "Okay, that's objective. Do you think that makes you a bad person?" Well, no, of course it doesn't make you a bad person. People come all kinds of different sizes, and when I was a kid, I was super, super, super skinny, and people teased me, and that's just how my body was, and and that's okay, and say. Do you think you're not healthy? And they'll say, well, no. I'll say, well, yeah, you're very healthy. I think you're a good person. I think you have a lot of energy. I don't think you look bad. But just be honest. Like, yeah. I think one of the mistakes we too make with our kids, I had this, this conversation with a client uh, years ago. I had a client who had an eight-year-old daughter who um, had really hairy legs. Like, she was super insecure about her hairy legs. And so the daughters, like, got teased about it and came to her and was like, Mom, I have really hairy legs. And the mom's like, no, you don't. You don't have hairy legs mm-hmm. at all. They're totally fine. Well, your kid is not stupid. They yeah. can see that they have hairy legs. Like, it's obvious. Yeah. So you can acknowledge and be like, okay, yeah, I can, I can see that you have hair on your legs. 
that doesn't make you a bad person. That's okay. Some of them, some of us has that. Like, you can have an honest conversation about these things without making it. And I was, you know, I'm guilty of this too. Like, you want to protect your kids and be like, no, this isn't the, yeah. you know, like if my kid comes to me and be like, I'm having, you know, you know, I'm struggling reading. I, I feel like I don't, I don't read as good as the other kids. I'm like, no, you read great. You've got the greatest reading in the world. Like I can say, well, okay, you know, maybe you don't read as good as the other kids. Um, but you know, there's things we can do to work on that. And that doesn't make you a bad person. I think you're a great person. That's it. We have a conversation about it. It's honest and that's it. We're done because at some point they're going to have challenges at some point they're going to feel certain things and you want to give them the tools, uh, you know, to, to, in order to, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, I forgot who it was that said this. I thought it was so impactful. Like you don't want to make your kids safe. You want to make your kids strong. Yeah. And challenge is part of that. Completely. You know, 100%. But I mean, if you if you create a culture in your home where that's just the way you guys live and when the kids open the cupboard, there isn't all these snacks and stuff that they can eat and there isn't any food that's really just because that's how we eat. That's just how we live. You're going to be OK. It's funny because I'll take my kids to a birthday party and, you know, like, I mean, they're, they're kids. They love cake. They love soda. Who doesn't? Right. Yeah. But my kids will eat uh, and I'm not boasting. This is just because their palate isn't used to these kinds of foods. They'll eat half their cake. And if they have a soda. My son will have a soda and he'll drink like a quarter of it and then he'll bring it to me and be like, I don't want any more. Is it okay if I throw this away? Why? It's too sweet for them. They're, they're, yeah. they're, 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 their, mind, their brains haven't been wired to have all this insane amount of sugar because we just never have it. And so there's that self-limiter kind of kicking in, which is kind of cool. Now, if we have that every day, pretty sure they'll be able to consume an entire cake, no problem, you know, so. Exactly. And you make it probably just not a big deal to have those things. If you were telling your kid constantly can't have sugar, can't have sugar, you're going to get fat, whatever, then they see it and they're going to binge. And then, you know, that's a whole other cycle. Yeah. And you might, you might tell them like, oh, you know, I've said this to my kids before, like, hey, you know, if you eat more, if you eat more of that cake, you might not feel so good afterwards. So just keep that in mind. Yeah. They've learned a couple times. They'll eat it all. I'm like, uh, I don't yeah, feel good. Exactly. Or they'll run around in circles and then, you know, 40 minutes later, they're irritable and, and angry and tired. And I'll console them and hug them and be like, you know, it, it might have been that you ate a lot of sugar earlier and, and that causes an energy crash. And here's what happens with insulin. And I'm just being honest with them, you know, helping them connect the dots too, you know. Exactly. And so they can make their own associations. And that's really empowering for a child. Exactly. So thank you so much for your time. I know we went over a little bit, um, but I'm just so appreciative of you coming on and taking the time to talk to us, not only like about, you know, the best exercises, but like you said, the mindset stuff, being open to struggle and challenge um, is just so important. And I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. So tell people where they can find you online and where they can find um, Mind Pump and also your MAPS programs. Thank you. So Mind Pump's the podcast. You can find it on iTunes. We are um, we do go a little off the rails sometimes. So the topics get deep like the ones we talked about. Uh, But we also have uh, a little bit. We have a sense of humor that can get a little out of control. So (laughs) don't listen to us on speakerphone if you have children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can find us on YouTube, Mind Pump TV. Uh, my Instagram page is Mind Pump Sal. I post other information on that. And our website where you can find all of our fitness programs, what we do is we design like workout plans, like 12-week plans and whatever. Um, and these are designed by trainers. So it's, uh, you know, they, they're, they're actually effective and appropriate. Um, you can find all that at mindpumpmedia.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening to Heart Food Podcast. 
To find the show notes for this episode, visit ashleypardo.com. Follow Ashley on social media at Ashley K. Pardo. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your family and friends and give us some love by subscribing and leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes.